She was allowed roam free around the streets on her little pink pushbike. A little girl in a blue hatchback car, looking scared, looking as if she's crying, looking out the window at the public. As soon as she hears about this thing at Rosebud, she wonders about one of her clients. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. It seems that our episodes aren't as long as some people would like. So for summer, we've done a series of three long episodes that tell one of the most tragic stories of my career. That is the abduction and death of a little girl called Cherie Beasley in 1991. This story starts, in a way, earlier that year, when Cherie's mother, Kerry, moved to Rosebud on the peninsula into a rough little rented house. Cheap rent, no garden to speak of, tumble-down-looking place. One of those holiday shacks that have been run up out of bad materials in the 1950s and by the 1990s looking very third-hand indeed. Kerry was only young, but she'd already led a pretty tough life. She was a girl from the northern suburbs of Melbourne. Her parents had split up when she was a baby. She'd been raised by her grandparents and raised quite well by her grandparents, who were respectable people. And in fact, her parents were respectable people. It's just they had married very young for the wrong reasons. And soon after um, little Kerry was born, they had moved into other relationships and they'd basically handed Kerry over to the previous generation to bring up. So Kerry was a girl that had been special but alone, and she probably looked for love in the wrong places. She got pregnant quite young, about 17, and she had Cherie. Now, she ended up with Cherie's father, who was a pretty good bloke, not a bad guy, and she had another child, another little girl, but soon enough, they split up because Kerry had developed an attachment for some loser that was in jail, a guy called Shane Beasley. And for some reason, Kerry decided that Shane was the love of her life. So she breaks up with the father of her two little girls. She takes up with the guy that is in jail and then gets out of jail. And she moves around several places. She'd moved to, I think, five addresses in five years. And she ended up with three partners in that time. So the start to little Cherie's life has been fairly patchy. And it was so patchy that Cherie's grandparents were very concerned about her to think that this child was being brought up down in this rough little house in Rosebud where the grandparents thought Cherie was not terribly well looked after. She was probably neglected. She was allowed roam free around the streets on her little pink pushbike that she got for Christmas of 1990. And at the age of six, this little girl was, you know, riding her bike a long way to the shops and away from home for quite a while and all that sort of thing. And this concerned her grandparents, it concerned her great-grandparents, it concerned her biological father, whose name we won't bother using here, but he was concerned about it, even though he wasn't living there, of course. And it concerned even some of the neighbours who didn't know this new little family very well, but they were concerned because they saw this little girl riding up and down the street on her bike at all hours of the day. And so we come to the fateful day of the 29th of June, 1991. Now, it's a winter Saturday in Rosebud. All that we associate Rosebud out of Melbourne on the Bayside as a holiday place, which in summertime is chock-a-block with people. It has carnivals, it has people swimming, people in tents. It's a tent city of holiday makers, but in winter it's quite a drab, quiet place 
and really back in the 90s, a little bit sort of low rent in the 90s, less so now. And on this particular day, it's instructive that the first person out of bed at Kerry and her latest boyfriend's house, the first one out of bed, is little Cherie, who's six years old. She gets up, she makes some toast for herself. She then makes some toast and cordial for her mother, which she takes into her mother. Her mother's 24, Cherie's six. Kerry, the mother, her boyfriend, Stephen, rolls out of bed and watches television. At about 11.15, Kerry decides to get up and watch television. And about one o'clock, one of the adults said to Cherie, could you get on your bike and go down to the corner shop and get us a packet of smokes and uh, go around to the other shop. There was another shop there where the people in the shop owed Kerry some money. And so Kerry writes out an envelope with notes in it, one for the corner shop for the cigarettes and some other stuff, a pie, a parsley, bottle of Coke, and one for the people at this other shop who owed Kerry some money. So they sent her off, six years old, on a pink bike while they watched television. This tells you something about the life they were leading. Poor little Sheree, she goes down to the first shop, she collects the money, she comes home, she forgets to go to the milk bar, and when she gets back, they go, oh, thanks, love, and get the money, and then they say, you've forgotten to go and get the smokes and the pie and the pasty and the coke. So she gets on her bike and she rides down, this is about two o'clock in the afternoon, to the milk bar, where she's been often before, with the $20 note in an envelope and a little list of things to get. And she goes to the shop and she gets the cigarettes and the other stuff. She gets back on her bike. And she's riding up this quiet street. It's one of those streets that runs down and hits the the big busy road that runs along the bay. So it's a quiet residential street. And it appears, as we now know, that a person has pulled up in a car and grabbed her. Didn't lure her into the car. Actually got out of the car and grabbed her. We know this because later a witness appeared. This was another six-year-old child saw this happen. No one knew that for some days. It's about 40 minutes since Cherie has been sent down to the shops. She hasn't yet come home. A lady who lives near there looks out and sees the little pink bike abandoned in the middle of the road. Some other people have also seen this pink bike abandoned in the middle of the road. And the first people to see it actually hopped out of a car and they picked it up because it would have been run over otherwise and they lent it against a tree with its bag of goodies. The second lady to notice realised that it was this little girl who lived down the street. And she thought, that little girl, I've seen her lots. Why has her bike been left there? Something's gone wrong. And she walked down the street and actually found Cherie's parents or mother. She realised that she roughly knew where they lived and she went there and knocked on a couple of doors and she found the right house and said, I've just found your little girl's bike down the street. It's leaning on a tree and it doesn't look great. So Kerry stays there with her other children. She's got a daughter and another little baby, I think. And her boyfriend, Stephen Ludlow, walks down the few hundred metres to the bike. And when he gets there, he's fairly concerned that something's gone wrong. But he opens the bag that's sitting on the bike and fishes out the cigarettes because he didn't want to miss those. And then he walks over to a phone box and rings the police, as you would. This is pre-mobile phones, basically. Rings the police. Then he runs home to the house and by the time he gets home, he's in tears. He realises that it's not great. And he tells Kerry, and this is the start of Kerry's ordeal and the ordeal of her family, of her parents and her grandparents and everybody that is related to little Cherie because they realise fairly smartly that she had been abducted, 
that it wasn't, you know, a, a domestic situation where there was an angry ex-husband who was going to have done it because Cherie's natural father was not that sort of guy. He was quite friendly and calm and would never do it. So they realised from the start that it was sinister. The police weren't so sure. When they turned up and saw the circumstances of the family unit, they wondered whether it was a scam. And the police have to eliminate these potential. And what the police did, which was clever and wise, they produced within a matter of hours crimes compensation forms for the parents to fill in, said you might like these, thinking that maybe if it was a scam, that's what it was going to be. And then by that stage, they'd put bugs on the phones so they could hear the reaction. And the reaction they overheard was that Kerry and her boyfriend and her relatives were very angry with the police and said those lazy police had just given us these forms and they're not looking. So they then realised that Kerry wasn't party to a scam. The child had genuinely gone missing with a stranger. So this becomes more and more sinister. On that first 24 hours, Kerry's father, Neil Greenhill, comes down from the northern suburbs with, in fact, Kerry's mother's second husband. Funnily enough, they stayed friendly. This couple that had split up, they stayed friendly. And they came down and they searched everywhere they could for Cherie, hoping like mad that, in fact, it was somebody that knew her that had taken her. And, in fact, Neil Greenhill, Cherie's grandfather, hoped that someone had realised that Cherie was living in bad circumstances. There was no doubt there were drugs being used. No doubt Cherie had been neglected. And he was hoping against hope that some good Samaritan with a twisted sense of decency had taken the child to save her from the way she was living. This, of course, is the sort of desperation that relatives hope for. They hope for anything apart from the most obvious and most sinister um, likelihood, which in this case, of course, that she'd just been abducted by some wandering deviant. Now, the story unravels reasonably rapidly. But it takes the police a few days to get a description of the car that took Cherie because early in the piece, on that first weekend, there'd been a miscommunication between the police and the media. And between the two of them, between a particular Sunday paper and television stations and the police, there'd been a breakdown of communication and the police gave the impression to the media or the media mistakenly drew an inference that Cherie's little pink helmet had been found with the bike. Now, that wasn't true. It hadn't been found with the bike. But the graphics that went in one particular newspaper and on television suggested that the helmet had been found with the bike. Now, this straightaway meant two very good witnesses, two really good witnesses, adult witnesses, who saw a little girl in a blue hatchback car looking scared, looking as if she's crying, looking out the window at the public. They did not report it to the police because this little girl in the blue car had a pink stack hat on her head in the car, which is unusual in itself. But in both cases, they went, oh, well, it won't be her because the stack hat was found with the bike. Well, that was wrong. It wasn't. It was a case where the media got it wrong or the police got it wrong and it switched the whole investigation off course at a very vital stage because it's conceivable that had the police had information in that first hour or two, it's conceivable that the child was alive, although highly unlikely. It's more likely that she was sexually assaulted and killed within the first hour or so. So 
It's cold comfort to relatives and friends of the family to think that there was a, a clue, but maybe it wouldn't have saved her anyway. But it certainly made the hunt for the killer more complex because the two really good witnesses did not come forward for some time until they realised that the mistake had been made about the helmet. Similarly, there was an eyewitness, it was a little boy. This little boy lived near there, near where Sheree had been abducted, and his parents had gone visiting someone, and he was being babysat by his older siblings, so, you know, teenagers, which was fine. But this little boy was just a little bit naughty, and he thought he'd go outside at some stage in the afternoon. And while he was outside on the nature strip, he saw Cherie on her bike. And he knew her from school. They were in grade one together, I think, at the local Rosebud School. And he was watching when a blue car pulled up and a man got out of the blue car and grabbed Cherie and put her in the car and drove her away. Now, this little boy is only six. He's just a six-year-old boy. He goes back inside and he didn't really say anything much about it. It was on the news that night. It became massive news of course, everywhere, all over Australia, but particularly all over Victoria and particularly in Rosebud. It was massive news. And his siblings and his parents were talking about it, but he didn't actually say much about it at all. He was nervous because he'd been naughty and gone outside when he shouldn't have, as happens with little kids. He's a little tiny kid. But on the Monday morning, so it's happened on Saturday, Monday morning a couple of things happened. One is that a detective goes to the local school, he goes to Rosebud Primary, and he talks to kids in each grade, and he says, does anybody know anything about Cherie? Did anybody see anything? And the little boy in grade one in Cherie's class doesn't say a word, but his older brother in another grade, like grade four or whatever, says, yeah, my little brother, whatever his name was, he said something about seeing Cherie, he told me. He said something about it. So the policeman goes, ah. So he goes and makes friends with a little six-year-old and he takes him to the street, probably with his mother, and the mother's saying, oh, no, he was inside all day. He's, he's telling fibs. And the policeman wasn't so sure that he was telling fibs. And the little boy was actually a very good witness, up to a point. And he said, yeah. He said, the blue car went there and then, it, uh, and then the man got out and he was, he was quite a thin man skinny and he was tall but not too tall he was taller than my stepdad and and you know older than my stepdad so he described the driver fairly well he said he didn't have fluff on his face he didn't have whiskers he was clean shaven and he sort of described his age pretty well and his physique and what he was wearing and then he said he, he grabbed Cherie and put her in the car and dropped the bike in the middle of the road the police already knew the bike had been left in the middle of the road. They'd worked that out. And then he backed the car around like that and went that way. Now, the police checked the tyre prints and the child was right. The tyre prints matched the kid's description. So they then had a description. And then later they got some other adult witnesses who'd seen a blue car. After a while, they were able to isolate it down to a blue Toyota Corolla hatchback, of which there were some 700 registered around Victoria, I believe, and many of them, of course, within reach of, you know, Melbourne, within reach of Rosebud. So a bit of a needle in the haystack, but at least they got something to look for. On that same day, on that same Monday, something completely different. A woman called Margaret Hobbs is driving to work and listening to her car radio 
And of course, the story of the day, the story of the week is this abduction. And she turns on the car radio on Monday morning as she's driving in from the eastern suburbs into the city because she has an office at this stage in Victoria Parade in Fitzroy, near St Vincent's, and her office or rooms is for her psychotherapy business. And this lady is called Margaret Hobbs, and she was known irreverently around the courts as the Flasher Queen because sex offenders would be referred to her for psychotherapy, many of them flashes and that sort of offender. When Margaret Hobbs hears this radio news that six-year-old girl gone missing at Rosebud, she has a pang of apprehension. She feels sick because she has spent many years talking to basically sexual deviates, mostly of a minor nature. But as soon as she hears about this thing at Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman, a dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt, and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free, and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth, and I thought he was dead. Another one been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime. Rosebud, she wonders about one of her clients. The client she's thinking about is an unusual man to be her client. He is a apparently respectable, middle-aged, middle-class, fairly well-educated fellow who comes across pretty well. And his name is Robert Lowe, Robert Arthur Selby Lowe. And Margaret Hobbs knows him because he's a bit of a uh, frequent flyer. He keeps getting into trouble for exposing himself, mostly the children. And Margaret had worked out that she thought he was building up to something more serious. And as soon as she heard about Rosebud, she was very worried that it might be him because she knew that Lowe had a holiday house at Rosebud. And Call it intuition, call it premonition. She felt bad about it. She goes to work, and in those following weeks, Lowe comes to her for his regular sessions, where he talks to her. And she realised that he, he was playing games with her, that he was dropping clues into the conversation with her and saying, well, of course, I wouldn't do something like that, but, you know, if I did. And he would say things like that. That was another form, she thought, of exhibitionism. He was trying to shock her verbally in the same way that he would shock children by uh, exposing himself. It's the nature of the beast. He's a strange, deviated man. And none of this gives Margaret Hobbs any comfort, and she does worry about it. And then, after some time, the police release the news that they are believe they're looking for the driver of a blue Toyota Corolla hatchback. And when the next time Lowe comes to Margaret Hobbs in Fitzroy, she gets her receptionist to follow him out and look at what car he drives away and it's a blue Toyota hatchback. Then Margaret Hobbs gets extremely concerned and she feels that she's got an ethical dilemma because she's a psychotherapist. She's not a psychiatrist. She's not a priest. She's not actually bound by any rigid ethical concerns, but she feels that she is to, to an extent and she's never spoken to police before about her clients. 
But on this occasion, she feels she should, and she speaks to the police. And next day, two detectives come up her stairs and talk to her, and she tells them her story, the story of Robert Arthur Selby Lowe, the man she's been dealing with for some time, and the bad feeling she's got about him and why she's got a bad feeling about him and the fact he's got a place at Rosebud and he's got the blue car and the police get quite keen on him. Meanwhile, the police have other reasons for getting keen on him because his name has come up elsewhere. They've been ringing around each of the owners of blue Toyota Corollas. Now, most people, if you ring them out of the blue, you know, a couple of weeks after a particular date, two or three or four weeks after a particular date, and say, where were you on them? They would have to look in diaries. They'd have to talk to their wives or husbands or their family members and reconstruct where they were and then work out if they've got an alibi or not. Because most of us don't recall instantly where we were at a given time, if there's no reason to do so. So therefore, most normal people have a normal reaction to those questions. And the police get pretty good at judging those reactions. But when a detective called Andrew Guski rings this car owner called Robert Arthur Selby Lowe, a man who lives in, I think, Glen Waverley, and asks him, he says, no, I wasn't there. I wasn't anywhere near Rosebud on Saturday the 29th of June. And the detective is rather taken aback by this. He said, how, you know, how can this fellow be so positive about where he was and where he wasn't? And the man is quite brusque, quite curt with the detective, which again is unusual. Most people called out of the blue by a detective are fairly friendly, fairly keen to help, and fairly keen to sort of exonerate themselves in a friendly way. And they're not inclined to be bouncing the police. But Lowe's reaction is different. And in the end, it's very different because the policeman says to him, look, I need to get your number so I can ring you back if I need to ring you at home about any of this to check things. And Lowe said, no, I've got a silent number and I'm not going to give it to you. I don't give it to anybody. And he said, look, I'm a policeman. It's not going anywhere. I just might want to use it once, twice. It's not a big deal. And Lowe insists on not giving him the number. And all that did, of course, was make the detective put an asterisk next to his name and say, this is a strange cat. He is aggro. He's rattled. He's aggressive. He's weird. So we now have two pointers pointing at Robert Arthur Selby Lowe. The police are pretty keen on him by this. They move into an office room next to Margaret Hobbs. There's an empty office there. They obtain it from the landlord. They set up bugging devices. They record the conversations that he has with Margaret Hobbs. They follow him. They have what the police call the dogs, who are the surveillance specialists. These are guys and women who go around dressed in casual clothes, looking like not police, looking like anybody, tradesmen or whoever. And they follow people in a variety of different cars, in a variety of different ways, and in ways where they won't be noticed is the idea. And, of course, they have to do this. Once they've isolated low and he becomes top of a very short list of suspects, they realise they have to follow him around the clock because what if it is him and what if he reoffends? So suddenly he is the focus of a massive surveillance operation because A, they want to build a case against him and B, if he is the offender, there's no doubt that he could reoffend. So they follow this guy around and they find out all different things. They find out he's been to a swimming pool where he's exposed himself to some children at a pool. 
They follow him into a McDonald's in Burke Road, Camberwell, where he exposed himself to some teenagers. They caught him playing with himself in the lavatories at the McDonald's and they follow him around and they realise that he changes out of his suit that he uses in his sales job. He's a travelling salesman, so he gets to drive around the company car. He will change out of his suit into shorts and T-shirt and go and offend and flash at children and then come back and change back into his suit and drive away because he's cunning. And he's sufficiently cunning that after he's offended, sometimes he will raise the hatchback on the vehicle so that the back number plate can't be seen, so that you can't tell. So he's, he's quite cunning. And, of course, meanwhile, the police look into Robert Arthur Lowe's background because it becomes very interesting. Who is this guy? Well, it is quite interesting. He was born in the UK, in, I think, Yorkshire, born to quite a well-to-do middle-class family. His godfather was a minister of religion who was later chaplain to the Queen. His parents were fairly well off. Robert was one of three brothers, and clearly he was a troubled boy from a fairly young age. He emerges as some sort of oddball teenager who offended as a 19-year-old in 1956. He tried to run over a policeman for some reason, which is probably to do with some sort of offending that he was doing. And the family migrated, as used to happen in those days. If you got into trouble in England, you'd develop a, a burning ambition to go to the colonies, to New Zealand or Australia or Canada. And so this family moved to New Zealand, where Lowe's mother married again to some doctor, I think, in New Zealand, where his brothers became quite successful business people, quite wealthy and successful, but where Robert Lowe really didn't flourish. He, um, between 1959, 1965, ran up quite a list of sexual offences, flashing different low-level sex offences, but creepy stuff, and he became quite well-known to the courts in New Zealand, and I think he served some jail in New Zealand. And this, of course, encouraged him to migrate again from New Zealand to Australia, as it get another fresh start, probably with the assistance of his stepfather and his mother and his brothers. So he comes to Australia, and he meets a young woman who is a very innocent, very naive young woman called Lorraine. And Lorraine had come from a family that Lorraine was a shy, naive, God-fearing, respectable young woman who'd been brought up in an exclusive brethren family, which meant that she hadn't been exposed to the worldly ways of films and television and all the rest of it. So she didn't really know much about life or about men or about anything much. And she fell for this reasonably charming, fairly suave fellow. Robert Lowe had gone to a you know second-tier public school in England and spoke fairly well and was confident and he, you know, could play a bit of cricket and so on and so forth. And she fell for him and he married her and they had two sons. What Mrs Lowe didn't realise or didn't fully realise because she was easily fooled by Lowe who was an accomplished liar, very deceitful and devious, far more cunning than his wife. And what she didn't realise was the extent of his offending, the extent of his offending in the past, 
and she didn't realise that he continually was exposing himself to children around the place in his work as a travelling salesman, which, of course, was the perfect cover. One day he'd be in Mildura, next week he'd be in Tarelgan, and wherever he went, he'd be offending. And whenever he was caught, which was not always, he was able to cover it up. But the police visit Mrs Lowe, and they think they can make an ally of her or find out things from her. Her initial reaction is to stick up for her husband, but she agrees to accompany him to the psychotherapy session with Margaret Hobbs. And the combination of talking to Margaret Hobbs, which she does in private at one stage, and talking to the police persuades her that all is not as it seems, that there's something very wrong with her husband. And at some point she yells at him, why don't you just stop it? Why can't you just stop it, all this bad behaviour? She can't quite comprehend that he's a suspect in the Shree Beasley murder, but after a while she and her sons do comprehend that. And in fact, they kick Robert Arthur Selby Lowe out of the house. And so by late August, several weeks after Shree has disappeared, police are confident that there is only one key suspect and it's Robert Lowe. And at this stage... Mrs Lowe and her sons acknowledge that their husband and father is the key suspect and they ensure that he leaves the house. Now he, he loses his job. His employer gets the bad news from the police. The employer sacks him, takes his company car back and he's then left to be travelling around on public transport and doing the best he can. He stays in cheap boarding houses and the police surveillance squad follow him to St Kilda and all these places where he's staying. And he starts this strange life where he's drifting around from place to place with a few possessions in his hand, but still visiting Margaret Hobbs because that's the one constant in his life that he can go there and talk to her in a, probably a way of um, a sort of a boastful way. He, he's wanting to hint that he might have done it. Meanwhile, the police are taping all this and gathering little bits of evidence. It's totally circumstantial. There's no body. There's no film. In those days, there wasn't really much CCTV footage. There's no mobile phones with triangulation of phones. None of the things that we take for granted now were around much in 1991. So it is a heavily circumstantial case. Meanwhile, the search for poor little Cherie goes on. And really, the heartbreaking element of this story is of the, the family, Cherie's family, and it's it's hard on all of them, of course, but Kerry's father, Neil Greenhill, felt particularly awful because he felt that he had shunted his daughter Kerry off to the grandparents when she was a baby and that that had contributed to Kerry's instability and that Kerry had become a careless mother, a flawed person, and Neil Greenhill blamed himself. And he, he was a, a good, ordinary hard-working, northern suburban, working-class guy. On weekends in winter, he worked at the football, I think, Victoria Park, Collingwood Footy Ground. He was one of the guys in the green coats that showed people to their seats and all the rest of it. And um, uh, he was a working-class guy. He was a little bit of a knockabout, honest, but, you know, a little bit tough. And he was absolutely driven to distraction by the thought that his granddaughter is out there somewhere and he can't find her and he's powerless to find her. And it's an extraordinary story because early in the piece before the car is identified as a blue hatchback, he spoke to a woman who had visions of things and she told him that 
the abductor had a blue hatchback car. She also told him that Cherie had been locked in a house with, and she came up with a particular name, and she didn't know whether it was the name of a house or the name of a street or what it was. But Neil decided it might be the name of a district, and he looked up this name, and it was a little tiny district in the Hunter Valley, north of Sydney, a thousand kilometres from Melbourne. He drove up there overnight. He drove non-stop to this place and he found an old abandoned house in this district and he went and looked at it in case the vision was correct. This is how desperate he was. Of course, he found nothing and he got back in the car and drove back to Melbourne. It was a round trip of, you know, 2,000 kilometres and he'd done it in 24 hours without sleep. And in fact, he, he drove through some roadworks and damaged his car. That's how exhausted he was. He was absolutely poleaxed by this tragedy. He was determined that he would kill the perpetrator. He made a vow to himself that he would kill the abductor if and when the abductor was found. Despite all the searches that are made over the Mornington Peninsula and elsewhere, nothing is found. She's vanished off the face of the earth, though, for all of July, all of August and much of September. There's nothing new to be found about Cherie. The story starts to fade because there are no new facts. There are no new leads. And the police, of course, are not telling the public that they are following around the prime suspect. They're just doing the best they can to watch that guy around the clock to make sure he can't re-offend. They're hoping that by watching him, he might lead them back to where Cherie's body is if indeed it is anywhere that he could go back to. For all they know, he's put her in the bay or they don't know what he's done. And that's the way the story stands until late September 1991, when there's a breakthrough. On next week's episode, they can see something. It looks like what they think is a kangaroo carcass. One of these witnesses, he later tells the police, he said, you know, when we pulled up and moved that bike, the back wheel was still spinning. She realises that she is the conduit for the only real suspect. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts.